And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Hmm. Jesus, you have been preparing this space for us all morning. You've been preparing this space for us since long before we were born. That on this day, at this time, we would have the privilege of seeing your glory. We've tasted some today, Lord, and for some of us it is overwhelmingly beautiful. For others, it scares us some because we don't understand it and it makes us uncomfortable. Lord, wherever we're at this morning, I'm asking that you would come close, that the aroma of your love would be sweet in our nostrils, 
that the way you speak to our hearts, Lord God, would be so clearly you that you're the only one that gets the glory. And so God, here I am again. I surrender. I've got nothing if I don't have you. But you've got me and I believe. And so we're asking for more. More of you, even if it costs all of us, more of you. That this place and every person in it and all who are online with us, Lord, that this place and every church that bears the name of Jesus Christ would be filled with the fire of heaven. That we would know your glory and that presence about which we sang. And that it would not simply be a song, but the, the, the closest thing to our proclamation of what we've already known. Your presence is heaven. Your presence is life. Your presence is enough. It's all there is. There's nothing greater than being near you, than being loved by you. And so God, teach us to want that even more today. Make us ready to let go of all lesser loves and come Holy Spirit, set up a protection around this place do not let the enemy have his way in here today, Lord Jesus. We plead your blood and we ask, Lord God, that you would do the work of heaven in us and do the work of heaven through us. Be glorified in this place, we pray. We honor you and we adore you. You are beautiful and we want more. Come, we welcome you in your name alone. Amen. You may be seated. So, Francois is an interesting first name, isn't it? Francois Fenelon is a 17th century Catholic archbishop, uh, and he was well known because of the people that he actually interacted with. He was nobility, and he interacted with nobility. So he was the tutor of the Duke of Burgundy, who was second in line to the throne of France at that time. He was a spiritual advisor to King Louis XIV. This guy had connections. He had a lot of influence. There was power in his life, and he was wielding that for the sake of our King Jesus. And he wrote this book called Let Go. If you've not seen this book before, if you've not read it, I highly recommend it to you. As I come across resources that are changing me, I'm going to give them to you because I think God wants us all to grow in the same direction at the same time. Fenelon's Let Go, it captures this message that we've been hearing from God over and over and over again. Can you read that with me? It's not about you. Now I want you to use the pronoun me. It's not about me. Some of you still said you. Were you calling me out right there? You're right. You're right. It's not about me. I, 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 I confess. But in this book, here's some quotes. Pain is only felt where there is life, and where there is self-life, it is just the place where death is needed. Ouch. How about this one for a t-shirt? God intends to accomplish his work in you by cutting off every human resource. <laughs> Wearing that around, people are like, hey, what is your, oh, right? Like, <laughs> nobody wants to see this. Nobody wants to believe this because we don't like this sort of thing. We don't want this sort of thing. But here's the one I want you to pay close attention to. Distrust your intellect, which has so often misled you. Pause. Let that sink in for just a second distrust your intellect, 
which has so often misled you. Again, I warn you, beware of philosophers and great intellectuals. They will always be a snare to you. They linger and pine away in discussing exterior trifles, and they never reach the knowledge of the truth. Their curiosity is an insatiable avarice, greed. They are like those conquerors who ravage the world without possessing it. Yikes. 17th century speaking truth that applies to us today. That when all we want to do is seek more, more information, more, more proof, give me a little bit more evidence, and then maybe I'll believe. You know what we'll never actually do? You heard it. Believe. Here's the point that Fenelon's trying to make and that I think is a great introduction to where God wants to take us this morning. God's smarter than we are. I didn't hear very many amens. Let me say that one more time. This thing's on, right? God is smarter than we are. Thank you. And so what's going to happen in your life time and time again is you're going to have these moments of confrontation where God's truth is going to confront what you think the truth is. And then you're going to have an opportunity, an opportunity to either be changed by the truth or to ignore the truth. But there's no other option. God is smarter than we are. And his world works his way. Last week, we were confronted with just one of those things. And some of you probably went home last week thinking, what on earth did I get myself into, right? And others were, were thinking, finally, we're finally here. We're finally at this place where we're actually believing what the Bible literally says. No matter where you are on that spectrum, I want to invite you to join us in this journey this journey that's talking all about healing, healing from Acts chapter 3, where you remember from last week, Peter and John, as they're entering the temple, they see a man crippled from birth. He's been crippled for over 40 years, and they go to him, and he wants money because he's aiming too low. And he says, we don't have any alms. We have no money, but here's what we have, authority in Jesus' name to do for you what you actually need done. And so get up and walk. And the man gets up. And he walks. And we talked last week, if you remember, about this reality. We tend to read Scripture this way. Well, that's nice that that happened way back then, all the way over there, to those people. But that sort of craziness doesn't happen today. That's not the world in which we live. We're smarter than them. That's what we mean when we say that. No offense. That's what we mean. We're smarter than them. So just do the math here. Smarter equals no miracles and healing. Smarter equals it's only up to us in our efforts to fix ourselves. Does that sound smarter to you? Does that sound better to you? It doesn't to me. And then we talked last week that it wasn't just back then that these miracles happened. We talked about all these examples of miracles that have happened ever since then. In fact, there's a great book by Craig Keener that's called Miracles Today, and it's got thousands upon thousands of miracles with evidence, medical evidence backing up that these things have happened. And so as we made the point last week, to not believe in miracles is to be irrational. To not believe in miracles is to be opposed to proven, factual truth. You're like, okay, last week was nutty. Today is going to be a little nuttier. You're right, it is. Because today, we're continuing in our study through the book of Acts that we're calling um, the mission of the Spirit. And today's theme is simply this. 
Our true faith is always revealed in our actions. Our true faith, not what we say we believe. Our true faith is always revealed in our actions, by what we do. So three points. Our own absolute truth, God's persistent pursuit, and the choice in front of us. So first, our own absolute truth. I want to introduce you to something, a term called relativism. We've talked about it in here before, but just so we're all on the same page. Relativism is this philosophy, religious philosophy, but this philosophy that says all truth is basically the same. Your truth, my truth, we're all on the same plane. It really doesn't matter because everyone's truth is equally good and equally valid. And the one thing we can all agree on is that there is no absolute truth. In other words, there's no truth that trumps all other truths. There's just my truth and your truth. Does that sound like any culture you're aware of today? It should because that's ours. Like, we, we laud that in our culture here in America. We talk about it in terms of tolerance, but we don't mean tolerance. That's, that's a topic for another, another day. But we talk about it in terms of tolerance under the umbrella of relativism. But I want to tell you that relativism is malarkey. Who knows what malarkey means? I love using that word. Yeah, malarkey, right? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's not true. So let me explain to you how relativism doesn't even stand up to its own terms. There's no absolute truth is an absolute truth. When you declare there's no absolute truth, guess what you just told everyone? Your absolute truth, the lens through which you're seeing everything else. So at the very start of this philosophy, it cuts itself off at the knees. But what about when it comes to Everyone's truth is equally good and valid. Hitler and Mother Teresa. You can't find two that are maybe further on opposite ends of the spectrum, can you? Are we really going to say that Hitler's truth, which was believed by many, followed by millions, lived out and cost the lives of millions upon millions, that his truth is equally as good and valid as Mother Teresa's? No one in here in their right mind would ever say that, which is why I'm saying to you, relativism doesn't work. None of us are actually relativists. Here's what we actually are. Little gods. We don't believe in relativism. It's way worse than that. We believe that the world should just revolve around what I think is good and right. What I want. The the, the definition I have for being a good person. And guess what? Guess who always lives up to the definition that I have for being a good person? Me. And guess who rarely does? Randy. (laughs) And the rest of you. And the rest of you. Okay, we're all equal here. I'm not picking on Randy. I am picking on Randy. So it's, it's neither humble nor loving for us to proclaim, hey, there, there is no absolute truth. That's how we get along. That's how we love one another. That's how we create space for everyone to just get along and belong. Wrong. That's how we create space for anarchy. That's how we create space for hopelessness and depression. That's how we create space for social media. If you want to see what it looks like, get a social media account. That's all you need to look at. That's what this looks like. How's it working out for us, friends? Not so good. Not so good. We all live life based on absolute truth. 
We all live life based on absolute truth. The question is not whether there are absolutes. The question is which are yours? What are your absolute truths? Which are you going to live by? And maybe the better question is simply this. What are you going to do when your set of absolutes is confronted with the absolute truth of God? The truth that doesn't change. Are you going to be willing to be changed by it? Or are you going to continue to insist that you have a right to believe whatever you want? That that's actually what's best for you? When hear me, no one is going to force you to believe anything. No one can. But to the degree that you continue to believe in this way of thinking, that you're the chief, you're on top, you're the one who gets to make the decisions, guess who you're never actually going to know? Him. Him. So if you want to know Jesus, and please know this, he wants to know you. He gave his life to know you. He puts you in the life of someone here or puts something in your path to get you here this morning because he wants to know you. If you want to know Jesus, you've got to be willing to lay down your absolute truths when they're confronted with his So verse 1, that was all introduction, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be a long morning. Um, So verse 1, as they were speaking. In other words, it's looking back at what happened last week with this healing miracle, right? And Peter and John are explaining what happened because the crowds are asking. And if you remember the passage from last week, it has all the rulers there already, right? The elders and the the, the leaders of the synagogue or the temple, and, and they're all there. They're all hearing this. They're all witnessing this. And Peter is explaining exactly what happened. You remember what he says? Like, you crucified the author of life. You put him to death, but God in his mercy raised him up. Hard stuff. So this is a reference back to what happened last week. He's explaining that through Jesus, God has raised this man who was crippled. It's by faith in his name. And then all of a sudden, you have these people. Who are the people who are there? I just want you to know who the players are right? So you have the priests who are the temple workers, those who are chosen that day to do the work of the temple. Then you have the Sadducees. They're of the priestly line, and they're they're the rulers of the temple. Then you have the captain of the temple. Who's the captain of the temple? It sounds like you should have like a uniform on or something, right? Um, The captain of the temple, also a Sadducee, please note. He's like the vice president. And then you have the high priest, who's kind of the number one guy. He's like the president of the temple. And you see in our passage these names, Annas, Caiaphas, and Jonathan. They're all family together. And what's happen- what happens oftentimes or happens, happened oftentimes in the high priestly family is they would rotate roles. So it would be a year on for this guy, a year on for that guy. And so when you're reading in the Gospels and you're like, wait a second, I thought this guy was the high priest. And now it's saying this guy's the high priest and this guy's. It's because they rotate. It's because they rotate. Why am I highlighting this? Well, because I want you to realize the Sadducees had absolute truths. They didn't come to this whole situation with Jesus like this. Oh, man, whatever, whatever happens is cool. We just want to learn and know and grow. No, they came with their own set of absolutes that before Jesus was even on the planet, walking around as a human being, they said this, there's no such thing as a bodily resurrection. That was one of their presupposition is that word. They presuppose. This is part of the lens through which they understand all of history. So their absolute is there's no personal resurrection and there's no personal Messiah. They believed in a messianic age. Why would they believe in a messianic age? Well, let's do the math. 
if you're in charge of the temple, and just a little history lesson here, the temple was destroyed, the people were in exile, they then came back, they rebuilt the temple, and now all of Jewish life is centered on that temple again. If you're in charge of the temple, what do you want to maintain? The temple. And it's centrality to all of life. Because then who gets to be in charge? God, right? No, them. They get to be in charge. It's the same principle that we just talked about before. And so, conveniently, they need to maintain control. These are their absolutes. Okay, this then explains why our passage says that they're annoyed. Well, I'd be annoyed too if some guy came in and all of a sudden started ruffling feathers and I was going to lose possibly my control, my power, my influence. Do you know what that feels like when you feel like you're going to lose your power, control, influence? Do you get annoyed sometimes? Do you have kids? All right, cool. So they get annoyed, and what do they decide to do? They say, we're going to arrest Peter and John. We're going to put them in prison, and I don't want you to miss this point here. Beware. Beware. Violence is the inevitable choice of those who harden their hearts against the undeniable truth of God. Not everyone throws other people in prison. Not everyone resorts to physical violence. But emotional violence, relational violence, Violence vertically and horizontally will always come when the absolute truth of God confronts our little absolutes and we choose to say no. There's no other way, friends. And so just a a challenge, an encouragement here. If you have found yourself getting angry, if you found yourself being annoyed, frustrated with some of the stuff we've been talking about in here or that you've been hearing in your disciple groups or that you've been wrestling with in the Bible as you've been doing your own study, can I encourage you to realize that you're experiencing the very same thing that the Sadducees experienced? I also think it's kind of funny that their name is Sad, you see? (laughs) God God has jokes, right? But But the point remains, right? If we take our own emotional temperature, we can see the inroad that God has for us to understand where our hearts are saying to God, no. And God isn't saying no to us. Please don't miss this. He's saying repent. Repent is not no. Repent is turn back to me. It's the call of a lover. It's the call of a father. It's the call of a shepherd going after a lost sheep. How many different illustrations does God need to give us until we begin to believe that his heart for us is actually good? He's not saying no. He's saying repent, come back. How are we doing, friends, when it comes to what we talked about last week? So there's a way to look at what we've been talking about big picture in general, but there's a way to look at it specifically when it comes to healing stuff. Because if we're honest... Many of us have had experiences in our lives where we've prayed for people to get healed and they did not. Many of us are walking around with pain right now that we've asked for healing from and it is not being healed. And so what we tend to do in that moment and in those examples is to look at the heart of God through the lens of our experience and say, God, you must not be good because you didn't do this. When instead, the right lens, worldview, absolute with which to look at this situation is from the heart of God into my experience. We've flipped the telescope upside down. 
We need to go right back up so we can see the massiveness of God, his goodness on display, and believe that the God who would not spare his son, but graciously gave him for us all, how will he not with him, with Jesus, give us all good things? It's not to say that God's going to bring healing every way that we expect it or even ask. It is to say that ultimate healing is coming, either today, tomorrow, or the day we meet Jesus. Ultimate and complete healing is coming to our bodies and to our souls. But like we said last week, Jesus is the one who's also said it breaks into now sometimes for purposes that are bigger than we can understand. And if we don't ask, we don't get. So who's ready to ask? I am. I've been asking. And I've been seeing. Do you know last week we prayed for Lily? Lily who's been sick for a year and a half. Who can't swallow food. Who can't keep it in her stomach. Who's lost too much weight. A teenager We've been begging God, asking. We last week prayed by faith with authority, and I got a text from her mother the next day saying, for the first time in forever, Lily began to feel better. Friends, does that mean that we're done with Lily? No, it means we keep praying into that. It means we keep asking and we keep believing. And as we believe more, God will move more. Why? Because he's good. He's our Abba. And his purpose, listen, was not just for Lily, it's for us. He wants us to begin to believe that he can and does heal. And so what is he going to do but say no, 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 no until now. And then he's going to heal. We prayed for Michael Atrey last week who's got stage four cancer. And it's come back, and he's been battling it for a year and a half. And I saw him last week at a funeral, unfortunately. And he comes up to me and he says, thank you for praying for me, because Sunday morning was the first day in a year and a half that I felt fully human again. How much of that was because I prayed for them? How much of that came through my efforts? How much of that, friends, I can do nothing, we can do nothing but ask. That's all God asks us to do, is ask and to believe the one who can and does heal. It's who he is, it's what he does, and it's what he's doing. I heard countless testimonies. Well, countless is probably too strong of a word. I can count them, right? I heard many testimonies. Someone who came forward asking for back pain to be removed, relieved, and immediately it was. Immediately it was. Someone who was in here last week came in with a migraine at four different points in her head, very scared of what that might mean for her health-wise. And do you know she left here without a migraine? I heard, I've heard testimonies. Amen. Amen. I've heard testimonies of people, teens in this place, gripped by fear, suddenly leaving this place without fear because God was with them and they knew it motivated to walk by faith. I heard testimonies on Sunday and throughout the week of people who were gripped by bitterness, who were upset with God, who released that bitterness. And you know what all of a sudden was released with it? The struggle they were having with particular sins. The addictions that they were living in and with. Friends, we have seen God answer prayers very concretely. And we're going to keep asking today. 
Because our God is not just a God of what happened back then or what's going to happen up there, way in the future. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thanks be to God. All right, so what are you going to do with your absolutes? (laughs) Are your presuppositions in the way? As we're talking about this stuff, there's a rumbling, isn't there? And I get it. If someone was on stage and I didn't know who that person was and they're talking about healing, I'd be like, that guy's weird, right? I would honestly think that. And I have thought those thoughts, forgive me, Lord. Sometimes they're, they're valid because they're trying to sell their oil, right? They're trying to make a profit and, and be that swindler guy. But that's not our God. Our, our God's not trying to buy anything or get you to buy something, rather. He's not selling anything. He's already given everything. And he simply wants you to experience it, to walk in it, to know it to its fullest. It's not just about our physical healing. It's about our heart healing, which is why we talk about these presuppositions. Because listen, when when you get caught in this endless loop, that's when you know. It's when you know your presuppositions are in the way. What do I mean by that? Well, the people in, in the passage for this morning... They wanted to ask Jesus, hear this, the same questions again. Please don't miss this point. They were literally right there when, not ask Jesus, ask Peter and John. When Peter and John were giving testimony about Jesus, how Jesus, in faith in the name of Jesus, what healed this person, right? They're testifying. Those leaders are there. They're in the text. They're already there. And so the next day after they spend the night in prison, they gather them back together and goes, okay, now tell us again. This endless loop like Fenelong talked about and that, that quote I had at the beginning of the sermon, this endless loop of constantly looking for more evidence, just tell us a little bit more, is not, listen, it's not proving that we're actually looking for an answer. It's evidence that we're not. It's evidence that we're not looking for an answer. We're not interested in what God actually has to say. We're looking for little ways that we can dismiss it, ignore it, or make it fit into the worldview we've already decided is the only one there is. What are you going to do when your absolute is colliding with his? Please don't miss this next point because it's really important. I want you to see, I think God wants us to see this morning, that faith and works are inseparable. We're familiar with this passage of Scripture, right? Faith without works is? Faith without works is? Okay, it's dead. It's dead. You got it. Faith without works is dead. He's saying, on one hand, it's like, oh, your your faith, if if you don't put it into action, it's not going to produce anything. But the other side of that is simply saying, if you don't have feet on your faith, you don't have faith. Faith is not something you simply believe in your head. It's something you live in your life. And so when Jesus is confronted by the, the, by the rulers about how he himself is casting out demons, how he himself is doing healings, they say, oh, you're doing this stuff by the power of the devil, by Beelzebub. And remember, Jesus says to them, a house divided cannot stand. You don't understand the way this works. But here's the difference. You're either going to do the works of one father or the works of another. Please notice that Jesus himself says there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. Let me put it to you differently. 
you are actively working in the direction of Abba Father in your life, or you are actively working in the direction of a very different father who wants to hurt you. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral. Which one are you working for? Now listen, I get it. That's hard to hear. So I just want to say that out loud. It's like, whoa, is he saying this? Is he saying, let me, let me explain what this looks like in real terms, right? When we're doing deliverance for people, deliverance is the way that we stand in the authority of Jesus and literally tell demons to leave that person alone and go where Jesus sends them. And it is absolute fire. It is heaven breaking in and freedom that we cannot produce for ourselves. You literally watch people who are weighed down rise up. And I'm hungry for more of it here at All Souls. If you think I'm not speaking to you, you're not listening. Every one of us in here is going to need to go through this at some point. Because those little guys, they like to... To, they, we call them hitchhikers. They like to put their hooks in us in ways we don't even see. But here are some of the ways that we do see. When the demon called shame puts its hook in you, oftentimes it convinces us because of childhood memories that we're ugly. That was one of mine. I believe my whole life I was ugly. You want to know why? Because I had a lot of voices telling me that, both in front of me and the whispers. You know what happens when you believe you're ugly? You become ugly. You live into the lie that you are believing. There's no middle ground. I was actively walking in the lie of the wrong father and it was becoming true of me. And it's become true of some of us in here, ugly. And so you start to hate yourself, despise yourself, hide yourself, never become the true self that you're actually made to be. And here's the crazy part. The entire time, you think it's your voice or his. And it's neither one. It's neither one. It's not the only way that he comes after us with shame. When you're abused, you feel dirty. feel dirty. It's your fault. That's who you are. You're the reason it happened. None of which is true. But you live your whole life believing it is. So you always look down. You come into God's presence to praise Him and all you can do is look down because you're gripped and weighed down by shame. When you believe the lie of the wrong father, you become that lie. You work towards that lie becoming true of you. And here's what oftentimes happens. Those who were abused becomes those, become those who actually do the abusing because we've believed the lie. and We're living into it. And there's literally the forces of hell encouraging you along the way. Fear is another one. When you believe that you have so much broken in you that not even God can fix you, 
When you believe there's enough grace for everybody else, but not you. Another one are mine. All of these are mine. When you believe that, then what hope do you have? You can preach it for everyone else, but it doesn't go deep enough for you. And so you don't see the grace of God overcome your fear because fear is already too big. You've been living into that reality. Do you see the point? Do you hear it? Do you feel it for yourself? Because friends, today, the Lord wants us to know these lies are actually lies. They're untrue. And when we do deliverance, which by the way, in order to do, to do deliverance, you know what you need to believe? That our God delivers. That our God sets free. That the captives that Jesus talked about when he quoted from Isaiah 61, the year of Jubilee, have come to set the captives free. That you're the captives. We are the captives. And we're the ones he sets free. And we're watching it happen again and again and again and again. It's happened in my life and it's going to happen in yours. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What about when it comes to healing, friends? Do you know who never sees healing in their lives? Those who don't believe it. If you don't believe that you can be healed in Jesus' name, guess what you'll never see? Healing in Jesus' name. Jesus is the one who said, this is how my world works. I'm combining faith and healing. They go together. It's not, hey, you need to have a great amount of faith in order to be healed. Wrong. Your faith is... The healing comes in the object of your faith. Jesus is the one who heals. He says, even if you have faith of a mustard seed, the smallest amount of faith, I can come and heal you. It's not about the degree of your faith. It's simply turning up and saying, I know you can do it. Will you do it? And stepping out in faith, just like we did last week. And friends, I know there are more stories out here because I just heard another this morning. There are more stories of what God's doing. And he's going to continue to do. Second point, Whew. God's persistent pursuit. Verse 8, it says, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Read here, fell upon him, right? We talked about the difference between being filled and falling upon. You're filled when you receive the, the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit then falls upon you to do specific ministry. That's what's going on here as Peter is anointed to preach the good news. He goes, and again, he convicts them as we talked about, and he calls them to repentance. And then he says this, the stone that was rejected is now the cornerstone. He's quoting from Psalm 18. He's also quoting from Jesus, who quotes from Psalm 18. He's saying simply what we've been talking about all morning, friends. That Jesus is the one that we're either going to stumble over or the one on whom we're going to build all of our lives. There is no in between. He's either the one who's going to be constantly confronting your wrong absolutes or setting you free to build on a foundation that is glorious because of what he has done and who he is. And they got Jesus really wrong, didn't they? It's pretty opposite of what probably should have happened, right? Like the king of glory, maker of heaven, comes, puts down, comes down to earth, puts on our skin, does everything right, and they nail him to a tree. Pretty opposite of what should have happened. 
They got him completely wrong. And yet, God uses that to bless them. Did you hear that? Some of you in here this morning feel like you keep getting it wrong. And because you keep getting it wrong, God is going to curse you. Is that what happened when they murdered the Son of God? God just, he's going to curse you because you got it wrong. No, because you got it wrong, God is going to use your even wrongness to bless you. It's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. That's why we keep coming back to this reality as we talk about this Jesus in the book of Acts. I had the privilege this week of doing a funeral. And I say privilege because funerals are sacred ground. They're a time when God loves to draw near and do incredible things. When the veil between heaven and earth is thin, you see Jesus show up in incredible ways. One of the ways I saw him show up was with the son of the guy who died. The man who died was named Bill, Bill Butler, Dale's husband. His son, also named Bill, Bill Jr., was in the hospice room when I was there, and I had the privilege of getting to know his story. And I want you to hear a little bit of his story because I think it gives us a window into just how much, even when things seem like they go terribly wrong, God's at work in it for our good. You see, Bill told me this story. He said, my dad was a police detective who took down some major drug dealers, was famous and still is famous, all sorts of newspaper articles, awards, everything written about Bill Butler and how awesome he was as a detective. And he brought up his son with the same values. And Bill Butler was a power lifter. He was jacked. I mean jacked. This guy was super strong. And he, he raised his son to be the same thing, super jacked and super strong. And then one day, his son, who also became a police officer, had a terrible car accident. Died on the scene. And they brought him back to life. Put his body back together. And he lived. But he's a broken man. Physically broken. Has trouble walking. Has trouble getting around. Has a traumatic brain injury. It makes it hard for him to think and speak. And he starts crying, telling me, sometimes I wonder why. Why did this happen to me? He said, and then I remember what my dad said, and his dad's dying on the bed next to us as he's telling me this story. I remember what my dad said. He said, if you didn't get into that accident, you never would have met your wife at rehab. And if you didn't meet your wife, you never would have had Bill III, your son, who's now a grown man. Or to put it differently, this way of suffering that Bill Jr. would have never chosen for himself was the way to the son that he wanted more than anything else in his life because of the love of the father that he could now share with the son. So when I asked Bill this question, with all the suffering you're in the middle of, with all the struggle, is it worth it 
Seems like a terrible question to ask, right? But I'm trying to encourage him in this moment. Was it worth it? Would you do it again? Would you give up everything to have your son? And without even a, a, a second's notice, he said, yes, of course I would. Because the love of a father is so great that he would give up everything for his son. Please hear, this is the good news of the gospel. The love of our Father who would give up everything, even His Son, so that those who have strayed from Him, who've gone away, could find a way back home. He did give up everything, and He'd do it again if He had to. That's how much He loves us. If you don't know this Jesus, friends, today is the day He is calling you into that relationship. The choice in front of us is simply this. Those who were on the ground when Peter and John did this miracle, they were astonished because they had no way of understanding Holy Spirit anointing. They had no way of understanding how this man was raised from being crippled and how Peter, this uneducated fisherman, is now speaking with such winsomeness in front of them. They had no way of understanding. And so here's what they decided to do. We're going to ignore all of this. We're going to pretend. We're going to cover up. We're not going to ask God to restructure our absolutes. We're going to restructure God. They choose to try to cover it up. They want to deny it but cannot. Did you miss that in the passage? They're like, everyone here has seen that this has happened, so we can't deny it. Translation, we want to deny it, but we can't do it. We want to deny what's clearly happened, but we can't do it. So what are we supposed to do? Here's what we'll do. Let's charge them to never speak about Jesus again, and we'll try to use the power that we have to control so that the world continues to work in my way. Any of you here struggle with using the power that you have to control your little world so that it works your way? Should I ask your friends, your spouse, your kids, right? We all struggle with this. It's, all, it's in all of our lives, but what are we gonna do? I love how in this passage, it says, they charge him not to speak anymore, but Peter says, you know, let God be the judge. Like, what, are we going to listen to you or listen to God? We're going to do what God's calling us to do. We're going to go out there and we're going to continue to preach because this stuff, you can't shut up. Thanks be to God. They want to punish him, but they can't. And here's why. Because of proof and praise. The proof is standing right there in front of them. Proof that God answers prayer. I'm living proof that God answers prayer. Jody is living proof that God answers prayer. Right, Joe? Amen. Amen. Many of you in this room are living proof that God answers prayer. Proof and praise? Yeah. It says they were praising God, so they couldn't just squash it because all the people were riled up praising God for what God had done. And I want you to know that this is exactly what God is inviting us into. It is not a fairy tale, friends, that God is inviting you to believe. Please don't miss this. He's encouraging you to put down the fairy tale that actually has you in charge. It's make believe. It's make believe. You never had the power. You never will. You don't get to decide what is good and what is bad, what is wrong and what is right. You don't even get to decide how many hairs are on your head or how many days you'll live in this planet. You don't get to decide any of that. You might have even tried to decide what to have for breakfast this morning and it burned. Who decided that? We are in charge of nothing. 
He is in charge of everything. And as we walk by faith after Him, we start to see His will be done in our lives. And that's the choice that we want to make this morning, friends, because His miracles are signs that He is King. Remember when God's people went into the wilderness, I mean, into the promised land? After they're in the wilderness for 40 years, they're with, the, with uh, Joshua, and it says that they go in, and, and the first city they come up to is named Jericho. Thank you, Kristen, the only person who's still awake. All right, Jericho. <laughs> they come to Jericho, and what does God tell them to do? He says, get out the battering rams, build ramps, ramparts, take down those walls, right? No, not so much. He says, for seven days, I want you to march around the walls of Jericho, and I want you to blow your trumpets and praise me. Hmm. Anyone here like a military guy, military lady? Anyone? I, I don't know that that's like the best plan. I mean, have you ever, have you ever done that before? Like, we're going to go, and we're going to march around, and we're going to just praise. Not so much. And then on the seventh day, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around seven times. And after the seventh time, I want you to blow the trumpets, and here's what's going to happen. The walls of Jericho are going to come down. Because of your praise, in other words, because of your active belief and open heart that I can do what you cannot, I'm going to do something that blows your mind, that blows your mind, that accomplishes for you what you desperately need but cannot accomplish for yourself. There's some who write about this episode who want to take all the supernatural out and make it natural, and they say, well, you know, so maybe this sound frequency was, was, was enough that it actually made the, the, the rocks rumble, and that's why the walls came down. It's like, do you know that the walls of Jericho were actually thick enough that people were living? They had apartments in the walls? I'm not so sure that sound frequency is going to be enough to knock down those walls. Pretty certain that it would have to be the hand of God alone. And that's precisely what happens, friends. Because of praise, because of praise, the walls come tumbling down. The challenge for us this morning is simple. What are we going to choose? Two challenges. First, after the service, I want us to go to Jericho. We've been praying for the bellows. Our youth pastor, Tommy, who was up here before, their family has been sick on and off again relentlessly. Accidents keep happening to their family over and over and over again. Do you think it's any surprise? Should it be any surprise to us after what God did in our teens this summer and this fall that all of a sudden our youth leaders would be under attack from the enemy. Who does he want to take out but them so that our teens who are on fire for Jesus would no longer be on fire? So we, if you will join us, we're going to go out to Tommy's house. We're going to surround it after the service and we are going to praise the Lord. And we are going to pray against the schemes of the enemy and watch him crumble. And before we do that, we're going to come to a table, a table that represents for us the only hope that there is. For as Peter declared, there is salvation in no one else. It doesn't come from anyone else. It's not possible. There's only one who's overcome the grave. 
There's only one who's defeated death and come back, and his name is Jesus. And so he, he came crumbling into our world. On the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he broke it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you see the picture here? Jesus did not come first to crumble, but to be broken for us. The hope of the gospel is not a God who's going to simply step in and say, oh, you messed up right there. See, nope, 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 that's bad. The hope of the gospel is a God who says, I get you more than you think I do. I get you more than you get you. Because I've tasted this all the way down to hell, and you never have, and you never will. I allowed myself to be broken for you so that in your brokenness you can find my wholeness, my love, and my grace. He has come to set us free, friends. We're going to trust him to do that today. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. So this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray, and then I'm going to give you some instructions. Jesus, we are asking with all of our hearts this morning that you would use these elements for their intended purpose. That, God, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. That our simple act of faith of coming forward to receive your gift would, Lord, so fill us with faith and hope and love. That we would taste freshly today the love of the Father, Abba. That we would rejoice freshly today in the sacrifice and perfect love of the Savior, Jesus. And that we would know the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit today in a way that we've never known you before, Lord. The way that brings healing and wholeness, deliverance and empowerment for mission. Jesus, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That we don't pray simply to a being, something up there, but to a person, a king, a lover, a brother, a savior, a friend. We submit to you freshly this morning. And we ask, Lord God, that you'd be glorified as we step out by faith this day. In Jesus' name.